Section 23 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Rise of the Hanseatic League, A.D. 1241, by H. Denica, Part 1. Trade trusts, which have attained so large a growth in our day, are not an original product of the present age. The Hanseatic League, or Hansa, the word meaning a society, union, was the first trust of which we have authentic record. It began about A.D. 1140, but the League was not signed until 1241. It was first called into being to protect the property of the German merchants against the piratical Swedes and other Norsemen, but presently became submerged in a combination of certain cities to enlarge and control the trade of each country with which they had commerce. So powerful did the League become that it dominated kings, nobles, and cities by its edicts. Those free cities which constituted the League had the emperor for their lord, were released from feudal obligations, and passed their own laws subject only to his approval. The emperors, finding in the strength of the cities a bulwark against the bishops and the princes, constantly extended the municipal rights and privileges. The Hanseatic League at one time nearly monopolized the whole trade of Europe north of Italy. It was an epoch of associations in which the League arose. The church was but a society, fighting as an army for its liberty. Each trade had its guilt and none might practice his trade unless he was a member of the particular guild controlling it. The handicrafts were in the same case, and the real or operative Freemasonry was instituted, about the same time, for the erection of ecclesiastical and palatial buildings. Wealth, power, pomp, and pride began to wane in the cities of the League early in the 15th century, and the movement was accelerated by the change of ocean routes of trade due to discovery of America, and the Cape of Good Hope way to India. The final extinction came as late as October 1888, when the free cities of Hamburg and Bremen, whose right to remain free ports had been ratified in the Imperial Constitution of 1871, renounced their ancient privileges and became completely merged in the autocratic fatherland. With good reason, the world's commerce is today accepted as one of the most imposing and unique phenomena of our time. It is but necessary to consult a statistical handbook in order to obtain a conception of the gigantic figures involved in the exports and imports of the multifarious articles of commerce to and from all countries, figures whose magnitude precludes the possibility of forming an adequate conception of their true significance. No less astonishing are the means employed by traffic today to develop our system of credit and our complex and useful web of communication. One fact, however, should be borne in mind, namely that our commerce is of comparatively modern growth. The two factors chiefly responsible for its development were 1. The great voyages of discovery, which began at the close of the 15th century and opened a theretofore unsuspected field of production and consumption, and 2. The utilization of steam, that great triumph of the 19th century. Perhaps a brief sketch of that earlier commercial development, which immediately preceded our extensive modern commercial network, may not be unwelcome to the reader desirous of contrasting the narrower, but nevertheless fascinating, medieval conditions of the German Hansa, 
with those prevailing in our present mercantile world let us inquire how the confederation of the hansa arose and after briefly sketching its external history review in greater detail its commercial and industrial methods its artwork domestic life and constitution the development of the german hansa may be traced to two principal sources one the associations formed by german merchants abroad and two the union established by the low german cities at home in the days of charlemagne germany's eastern border was extended to the elbe and beyond it to holstein but it was not until four centuries later that is in the reign of frederick barbarossa that the baltic was reached the southern borders of which sea now constituting mecklenburg pomerania and prussia having theretofore been inhabited chiefly by slavonic and lithuanian peoples the credit for this increase of power is due primarily to the saxon duke henry the lion who while the emperor was engaged in maturing and executing mighty plans of world conquest developed upon this virgin soil an extraordinary colonial activity transplanting hither german peasants burghers and priests and with them german customs and christian civilization in this way there arose about the year a d twelve hundred upon soil wrested from the slavs a number of promising towns foremost among which was lubeck a place endowed by duke henry with municipal rights especially designed to promote commercial intercourse and affording liberal and far-reaching privileges to the councillors and burghers soon thereafter the rapidly developing neighboring cities of wismar rostock stralsund greifswald anklam and stettin usually called the vendish cities became participants in the constitution thus granted the territory now grew rapidly in the course of the thirteenth century the then pagan country of prussia and the present baltic provinces of russia were conquered by the teutonic knights and kindred orders and were occupied and settled the same historical process which took place in greece and in more recent times in america also repeated itself here the youthful colonial offshoots overcame the narrowing and confining influence of the mother country yet reacted favorably upon it by virtue of that vivifying influence due to more rapid and exuberant growth in the meantime the other countries contiguous to the north and baltic seas that is russia sweden norway denmark and england had become converted to christianity some of them indeed had embraced the christian creed several centuries prior to this time the natural consequence was that a lively intercourse was cultivated upon the two seas especially after the crusades which enterprises by opening new avenues of commerce and increasing the knowledge concerning numerous articles of utility had greatly augmented the demands of the people of the occident the extraordinary development of trade on the baltic indeed vividly recalls the ancient commercial activity on the mediterranean and the phrase a basin fruitful of culture often applied to the latter region may with equal justice be applied also to the former in the beginning russians danes and englishmen participated in the active trade conducted on the northern littoral eventually however they were displaced by their german rivals as the northern nations upon their acceptance of christianity had once before formed their political and social institutions upon german models so they now in such cities as stockholm bergen copenhagen and others became subject to the cultural and above all the commercial influence of the german burgher 
It is interesting to note the manner in which this extraordinary influence was secured. In later medieval times all classes of the population were compelled to rely upon self-help. In other words, they were compelled to replace the defective or insufficient protection afforded by the state by corporate bodies. Thus the merchants of a low German, German town, when in search of a common centre of trade, pledged themselves by a solemn oath to a defensive and offensive alliance and mutual furtherance, and wider alliances between the various towns themselves soon followed. Of all these private commercial associations none attained to greater importance than did the Gothland Company, a society of low German merchants who visited Gothland, the centre of commercial activity in the Baltic, for trading purposes. Here was the seat of the mighty sea of Visby, which contained such wealth that a Danish king once declared that a swine there ate from silver troughs. Even at the present day the massive ruins of the old city wall and of the eighteen churches which once existed there bear testimony to the former magnitude and grandeur of the city. The Gotland Company flourished chiefly during the thirteenth century and enjoyed all the privileges of a political power, bearing its own seal, policing the seas, and insisting upon strict compliance on the part of all navigators of the Baltic with the marine laws which it had created. Parallel with this development was the formation of unions between inland towns caused by the depredations of robber knights, the menacing increase of power among the nobility, and by commercial motives of all kinds, as, for example, the necessity of preventing banished criminals and debtors from seeking an asylum in neighboring communities. Along the entire region, from Estland to Holland, both of which at the time belonged to the German crown, the municipalities united. In the far western part of the German Empire there was the municipal group of the Netherlands, among which such cities as Amsterdam, Utrecht, and Deventer belonged. Farther inland was the Rhenish-Westphalian group, consisting of Cologne, Dortmund, Münster, and others, which cities, though somewhat distant from the sea, nevertheless occupied a place of honour as pioneers of German marine commerce. Between these two western groups and those in the east there was a wide gap, extending as far as the mouths of the Elbe and the Weser. At the entrance to these rivers, however, and along the borders of the Baltic, were the great maritime communities, the chief members of the Hanseatic League, including the before-mentioned Wendish group, and the cities of Bremen and Hamburg. Yet not these alone, although they were in some respects the most important. Inland, the municipal groups extended so as to embrace Berlin, then very unimportant, Perleberg, etc., in the mark of Brandenburg, the Saxon cities of Magdeburg, Hanover, Lüneburg, Goslar, Hildesheim, Brunswick, and others. In the far eastern part of the empire, the six rapidly growing cities of the Teutonic Order, Kulm, Torm, Danzig, Elbing, Braunsberg, and Königsberg, and finally in Livonia and Estonia, Riga, Dorpat, Reval, and Pernau. Noteworthy was the treaty concluded in 1241 between Hamburg and Lübeck, whereby the former assumed control of the interests in the North Sea and the Elbe, while the latter safeguarded those of the Baltic. This treaty between Hamburg and Lübeck is sometimes regarded as the beginning of the Hanseatic League. It has here been sufficiently demonstrated, however, that the association was the result of a slow and gradual process enforced by conditions, 
and that it did not originate in the mind of any particular statesman as a definite plan the two groups the maritime and the inland municipal had developed independently it now remained to unite them and from the union thus effected sprang the great institution of the german hansa the private associations not excepting the gotland company in view of the rapid extension of commerce and the consequent jealousy of foreign competitors were no longer able to afford sufficient protection to the foreign trade a condition which did not escape the statesmen of lubeck with their market power of initiative and political sagacity thus it came during the last decades of the thirteenth century that the private societies became more and more dependent upon the municipal unions which under the leadership of the free and centrally located city of lubeck now assumed the energetic guardianship of maritime commerce by reason of which they were drawn from their hitherto isolated position and gradually became fused into an increasingly compact union already at the close of the thirteenth century the young institution of the hansa received its initiation in warfare in a conflict with the kingdom of norway which country was compelled to purchase peace at the price of new and greater concessions to the league soon thereafter however the steady progress of the hansa met with a rebuff denmark at that time the foremost power of the north had for more than a century endeavoured to obtain the supremacy of the baltic at the entrance to which it was so advantageously situated at one time lubeck was for an entire decade forced into a sort of vassalage to the energetic king eric menvet of denmark although the relations to the sister cities of the league which had never been entirely severed were subsequently restored and confirmed by new treaties when finally in a d thirteen sixty one the danish king waldemar atterdag inspired by rapacity and revenge went so far as to fall upon the metropolis of the baltic the swedish city of visby in the midst of peace and to annex it thereby inflicting serious losses upon the resident low german merchants lubeck once more placed herself at the head of the vendish cities and at the diet of greifswald decreed war against the ruthless invader but the expedition proved disastrous owing chiefly to the tardiness of the kings of sweden and norway who had been drawn into the alliance nevertheless the unfortunate admiral of the lubeck fleet johann wittenbock who also enjoyed the rank of burgomaster of the hanseatic city was put to the axe in the public market-place of lubeck in expiation of his failure a doubtful peace was now concluded with the danes but was soon broken by their renewed plunderings of hanseatic vessels and the obstacles placed by them upon traffic another passage at arms was required the ensuing conflict was the greatest and most glorious ever fought not only by the hansa but by germany upon the sea in thirteen sixty seven deputies from the prussian vendish and netherlandish cities assembled in the city hall of cologne and there prepared those memorable articles of confederation which decreed another war with king waldemar of denmark stipulated the levying of a definite contingent of troops on the part of the contracting cities provided for a duty on exports to defray the expenses of the campaign and drafted letters of protest to the pope to emperor charles the fourth and to many of the german princes that auspicious day marks a turning point in the history of the hanseatic league and was fraught with high importance to the whole german empire the preliminary history of the hansa here ends and its brilliant epoch begins the warships of the cities and their army so thoroughly vanquished denmark 
that after two years of warfare the Danish Royal Council and the representatives respectively of the municipalities, the nobility and the clergy, despatched a commission of thirty-two to the city of Stralsund to sign a treaty ostensibly in the name of their fugitive ruler, a treaty which may justly be said to mark the climax in the development of the power of the burghers of Germany. The treaty not only provided for considerable concessions in matters of navigation and intercourse, but also conceded to the members of the Cologne Confederation, comprising about sixty Hansa cities, the right to occupy and to fortify for a period of fifteen years the four chief castles on Skane, Helsingborg, Malmö, Skanov, and Fastelbro, commanding the Sound, the most important maritime highway traversed by the Hanseatic vessels. But the most extraordinary privilege granted by this treaty was that making the subsequent election of a king for Denmark subject to the approval of the Confederation, thus assigning to the burghers a right such as no king or emperor of that time exercised over a foreign state. The Confederates, however, wisely declined to avail themselves of this dangerous prerogative, not only for political reasons, but also because of the clever negotiations of the youthful Queen Margaret, the daughter and heir of Valdemar, who, by the union of Kalmar in 1397, became invested with the triple crown of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. The fact remains, however, that the Hansa, for the ensuing century and a half, maintained its title as the foremost of maritime and as one of the principal political powers, and that entirely unaided and without the sanctions of Kaiser or Empire. Let us take a very general survey of this glorious period, concerning which many interesting disclosures have recently been made, and endeavour to obtain, if possible, a glimpse of the activity of these busy cities and of the confederation which they formed. As to commerce, the first task which the confederation set itself to fulfil was the abolition of that early medieval condition which inclined to regard the stranger in foreign parts as devoid of rights. The efforts of the Confederation in this particular resulted in the acquisition of hundreds of privileges, secured either singly or conjointly by the cities. The contents of the treaties are usually the same. 1. Protection of person and goods. 2. Abolition of the law, which declared forfeit to the feudal lord such goods as, for instance, might happen to fall from a wagon and thereby touch the ground. 3. The abolition of the strand right which had secured to the owner of the shoreland the jetsam and flotsam of wrecked or stranded vessels four the concession of legal procedure to the debtor five liberation from the duel and other forms of the divine judgment in legal procedure six the reduction of duties seven permission to sell at retail as for example cloth and linen by the l a privilege previously accorded only to natives these are but a few of the privileges secured, the most important of which, however, remains to be mentioned. This was the establishment of branches and bureaus in the most frequented commercial centres abroad. On the other hand, the Confederation never had the remotest intention of granting similar privileges to the nations from which these concessions had been secured, such as England, Flemish, Norwegians, Danes, and Russians. On the contrary, in Cologne, for example, foreign merchants were permitted only three times a year, and then for a period of three weeks only. Never, perhaps, in history has a monopoly been so rigidly and relentlessly enforced. 
a monopoly which not only rested upon the nation at home, but which made bold incursions into the sovereignty of foreign states in order to smother their independent trade, or, as in Norway, utterly to stamp it out. Of the two great avenues of trade, that indicated by the termini Bruges and Novgorod is first deserving of mention. For centuries it was practically used exclusively by merchants of the Hansa, who, moreover, were forbidden to form co-partnerships with foreigners, such as Russians and Englishmen. Novgorod, well guarded against pirates and situated in the navigable Volkov, was at that time, in a sense, the capital of the much-divided Russian Empire. This city, since the day of its founder Rurik, had been the centre of Russian trade and enjoyed an almost republican independence. From this point diverged the most frequented highways of trade to the Dnieper and the Volga. From Russia, the German merchant exported chiefly fine furs, such as beaver, ermine, and sable, and enormous quantities of wax, which today, as formerly, is still obtained in the central wooded parts of the country where apiculture is extensively prosecuted. His imports, on the other hand, consisted of fine products of the loom, articles of wool, linen and silk, of boots and shoes, usually manufactured at home of Russian leather, and finally of beer, metal goods, and general merchandise. It is evident, therefore, that the German merchant provided Russia, which country was at that time industrially in a very primitive condition, with all the necessaries required. Bruges, in Flanders, the western terminus of the before-mentioned highway of commerce, was during the last centuries of the Middle Ages approximately what London is to the world of today. It was, besides Venice, the actual world-mart of the continent, a centre where Italians, Spaniards, Portuguese, Frenchmen, and high and low Germans, a motley throng, congregated to exchange their goods. Thither the Hanseatic merchant transported wood and other forest products, building stones and iron, the latter being still forged in primitive forest smithies, and copper from the rich mines of Falun, the ore from which was usually sold or mortgaged to the Lübeck merchants. From the Baltic countries he imported grain, and from Scandinavia herring and cod, all natural products in exchange for which he sent to the respective countries his own manufactured goods. In Brish he represented the entire northern region, both in the giving and in the receiving of merchandise, for only through his instrumentality could the gifts of the East, such as oil, wine, spices, silk, and other articles of luxury, which were usually transported through the Alpine passes and thence down the Rhine to Bruges, be distributed among the northern nations. This applies also to the highly prized textiles of Flanders, which in those days were sometimes sold at fabulous prices. The other stream of Hanseatic trade terminated at London. The German merchant sent thither chiefly French wines and Venetian silk. It was he who attended to this traffic, not the consumer or the producer. In exchange for these commodities he took English wool, the output being already at that time very extensive, transporting it to the mills of Flanders. Such was at that time the commercial relation of Germany to England. If the latter country today, by virtue of its incomparably favourable geographical position, has become the first naval and commercial power, it was, in an economic sense, at that time absolutely dependent upon Germany, 
which country, after the loss of its political supremacy, outstripped all other nations in the contest for economic supremacy, excepting perhaps the Arabians and the republics of northern Italy, who controlled the trade in the Orient and the Mediterranean. Naturally, the English merchants were jealous and frequently brought complaints before their kings and parliaments, but the latter, despite occasional contentions, ever and again upheld the foreign invader. The reason is not far to seek. Like the kings of the north, they could not dispense with the silver chests of the Hanseatic towns and merchants, who on more than one occasion secured their loans by appropriating the products of the tin mines or the duties on wool, or by taking in pawn, crown, and jewels. It is evident, therefore, that the greatest source of wealth to the Hansa was this intermediary traffic. Several other important commercial connections will be touched upon later. Casual mention should here be made, however, to the trade with Scotland, Ireland, Brabant, and France, whose annual markets were regularly attended by the Hansa merchants. While the trade of the cities of the League found such wide extension abroad, however, the traffic with their nearest neighbours, the High Germans, was very weak. Their domestic trade, indeed, was confined chiefly to the plains of northern Germany, extending southward to Thuringia and eastward to the Oder and the Vistula, where Krakow constituted the last outpost. The chief High German communities along the Main and the Danube pursued different political and economical interests. Being chiefly manufacturing cities, they formed only temporary unions. Dependent rather upon the south of Europe, they were also differentiated from their northern brethren by their coinage, inasmuch as they accepted gold as their standard, whereas the low Germans preferred silver money, especially that of Lübeck. Of course, each Hansa town formed the nucleus of the local intercourse, and thither came noblemen and peasants to barter the produce of the fields for the merchandise of the city, and to invest, or probably more frequently to borrow, money. Lübeck and Brüsch were in those days the money centres of northern Europe, and their councillors and commercial magnates were the bankers of kings and princes. The methods of transportation and intercourse at that time were very different from those of today. There were no postal service, no insurance, very sparse circulation of bills, and very little of that agency or commission business which relegates to a third party their transportation and management of goods. Trade was very largely a matter of individual enterprise, demanding in a far greater measure than today the personal superintendence of the merchant. Usually the latter himself travelled well armed across sand and sea to distant lands, trusting in God and upon his strong right arm. As master of a vessel, he did not fail to interest his crew in the safety of the ship and cargo by allotting to them part of the profits. Indeed, his journey was far more perilous than it is today. Upon the public highway he was subject to the attack of the robber barons, who held him prisoner against heavy ransom and in the innumerable hiding-places of the rock-bound northern coast his course was followed by the watchboats of pirates. The occupation of highway robbery and piracy were at that time still regarded among white circles as excusable. Dozens of feudal castles, the retreats of robber barons, were destroyed by the soldiers of the municipalities, and dozens of freebooting vessels were annihilated, the robbers themselves being executed with axe or sword, or thrown overboard. The piracy of that age reached its acme in the notorious society of equal sharers, or brotherhood of victuallers. 
This consisted of an incongruous aggregation of noble and plebeian blades, who, despite their excessive brutality, nevertheless possessed some genuine knightly characteristics, the hardihood and bravery of the true mariner, and the boundless love of adventure. Formed during the eighth decade of the fourteenth century, for the purpose of assisting the king of sweden against the martial queen margaret of denmark its immediate object at that time was the supplying of victuals to the beleaguered city of stockholm whence its name when upon the surrender of the city and the establishment of peace the immediate object of the society had been fulfilled the attraction of freebooting proved too strong for these wild companions whose excesses now assumed an increasingly alarming form for more than a half-century they remained the terror of the northern seas. Almost annually the cities were compelled to send out vessels against them, which, however, were not always so successful as the celebrated Buntecu, Brindled Cow, of Hamburg, which captured the most dangerous of the piratic captains, Klaus Störtebacher and Godeke Michel, with their followers and their fabulous treasures, and brought them to Hamburg. Tradition has it that for three days the public executioner stood ankle-deep in the blood of the condemned. Nevertheless, the seafaring public did not suspect the presence of a robber behind every bush or cliff. After all, an undisturbed voyage was the rule rather than the exception, sensational occurrences, of course then as now, playing an important part in the reports of the time. To these social disorders must be added elemental dangers of all kinds, such as the tides and shallows of the North Sea, the shallow waters contiguous to the coast being chiefly navigated, dangers against which neither compass nor chronometer was then available. Even buoys and lighthouses were comparatively rare or inadequate at a time where nautical knowledge itself was still extremely defective. It was therefore not astonishing that shipwrecks were of daily occurrence, and were of course followed by all the evils of that cruel and barbarous strand law which despite all papal edicts and voluntary treaties could not be abrogated but was actually carried out by the archbishop of bremen himself notwithstanding all these hindrances the sea voyage which by reason of the dangers attending it was strictly prohibited during the winter months was incomparably safer and pleasanter than the journey by land the traveller by land was strictly confined to the prescribed highway of travel, every deviation from which was regarded as a defraudation of the customs and was punished by confiscation of goods. The inconveniences to which the merchant was subjected in the way of taxes was almost incredible. As the medieval spirit was reflected in the confusion of coinage, nearly every petty count and every city eventually enjoying the privilege of a private mint so also was the deplorable disunion existing among the german people mirrored in the innumerable road and water taxes above hamburg along a road about twelve german miles in extent there were not fewer than nine custom stations fortunately the tariff was not complicated but was levied on the freight of the ship or wagon or estimated by the bale or box irrespective of value or the quality of the goods under inspection upon the presented crucifix the merchant aided occasionally by his co-jurors solemnly swore to the correctness of his representations concerning the goods carried by him the oath as is well known being very frequently brought into requisition in all judicial and commercial transactions during medieval times. End of section 23